This is the audio version of the Fleet Street Fox column for Monday, March the 14th, 2022. We need to talk about what happens after the war in Ukraine is over. Open the window and ask the first person you see if Volodymyr Zelensky is having a good war. The average Briton street will say he's done well for a former comedian, before adding something along the lines that Putin's not laughing though, is he? <laughs> a better than average Brit will say a lot of his country's been obliterated, his family's in hiding and thousands are dead, but he's doing a sound job of leading from the front. And a worse than average citizen will tell you he needs to spend less time on the wing and attack more in the first half. Received wisdom, though, is a short-term thing. It's not much use if circumstances change. And in what was always intended to be a short, sharp war, change is a constant. Three weeks in, Putin expected to be riding in an open-top car for a victory parade down Kiev High Street as Zelensky swung from a lamppost. Instead, he's looking at a humiliating defeat as his rusty war machine collapses, capitalists kill his economy, and the Ukrainian equivalent of Ricky Gervais roasts him on Zoom. And there are signs that another change is going to come. Russia and Ukraine are making substantive progress in peace talks, finally, although peace has yet to break out. Reports from sources in Kyiv say that if they can hold out for just one more week, the stuttering Russian advance will crumble. And there are intelligence claims that Putin wants to encircle key cities and then declare a victory this Friday, which marks the eighth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. Those things all point towards a ceasefire sooner rather than later. And arguably, there's not a lot left for Putin to pound to dust. Seeing as he's shipping in Syrians, asking the Chinese for weapons and failing to squash the resistance with a military that's run out of fuel, food and communications, he couldn't continue even if he wanted to. In military strategy, there is what's known as a culmination point, where the momentum of an attack drops, that of the defence increases and the length of the supply chains makes a war stall as surely as an unserviced Russian tank with a dodgy clutch. But it's what comes next that matters. Zelensky might have led the resistance, but next he will have to lead a democratic recovery in a nation bedeviled by corruption and about to be flooded with Western aid cash. Once he's got the power, water, sanitation and hospitals back online, he'll have to house thousands of homeless, care for the sick and freshly amputated, freshly traumatised populace. Parts of Ukraine became more separatist and others more nationalist after the 2014 invasion of Crimea. Even after Putin withdraws, people will pick a side. And Zelensky, for all his qualities, is not a politician. He has no experience of operating the internal machinery of a state, and now he'll have to do so when all the levers of power have been bombed beyond function. What's more, Zelensky will have to figure out all that while being Putin's number one target for assassination. He can never drink a cup of tea or trust his underpants again. Vladimir Putin may seem doomed to our eyes, but the hand-picked gangsters around him are at risk of standing alongside him at the International Criminal Court to face accusations of war crimes. They might protect him to keep themselves safe, at least for a while. If he's kept in place, if only for a few months, what will he do with the time? Pocket the gold and prepare to run? Or dig in, crack down, kill dissidents? If he can declare a victory of sorts, he might stay in power for another year. And when you pair his paranoia with military defeat, will his roid rage mind find new enemies? Now the world knows his military cannot sustain a long ground war, the only action he could successfully take 
would involve submarines, missiles, and perhaps his massive stockpile of biological and chemical weapons. Perhaps the oligarchs who've watched their yachts be impounded will move against him and dethrone the madman before they lose their last billions. But after 20 years in power, everyone beneath and around Putin is his puppet and likely to share his grandiose dreams of a Tsarist Russian empire that can be looted while blaming the West. Putin version 2.0 is no more likely to lower the price of gas or allow unfettered journalism than the first one. It could take a decade and several presidents for Russia to find its feet without Putin. The West is more unified than it has been for years, and the need to fund NATO better seems clear. But that can't last forever, and when the war is over, nations will start saying again they cannot afford the 2% GDP contribution because of the economic effects of sanctions and the pandemic. And if NATO never acts against the biggest threat it's faced since the Second World War, it will be called useless, toothless, unnecessary. It may have been all that kept Putin from doing worse, but like an unused insurance policy, people will start to ask if they ever really needed it. All this could go well, of course. Zelensky could be the founding father of a new Ukraine, Putin packed off to jail, a reformer in the Kremlin, and NATO become more of a global defensive force. But even then, dear reader, the world's economy is snafued for a decade, with money poured in one direction and emptied in another with economic sanctions driven by government policy and public opinion crippling, in turn, maybe Saudi Arabia, the Chinese Communist Party, carbon-hungry industries, and who or whatever becomes the latest bete noir of the global north. In short, the shelling could stop at lunchtime, but we're still in a mess. There are signs that it's probably going to stop soon, but no indication whatsoever the world is ready for what comes next. But it's worth bearing in mind that former street kid Vladimir Putin came to power in the vacuum created when the last Moscow-based empire collapsed. His oligarchs scooped up the state riches that were scattered on the ground. In the free-for-all that came after the Iron Curtain came down, capitalism was both legal and illegal. And that's why the largest country in the world ended up with a tiny, mad little man in a position to do exactly what he's just done to Ukraine. The West let it happen because our leaders wanted a share of the rubles. But every disaster has its Del Boy, a grifter, ready to exploit it. Failing to plan for him gave us a world threatened by a Russian mafia don who'd happily leave a nuclear warhead in your bed. Failing to plan for what comes after Putin is finished with Ukraine, or Ukraine finishes off Putin, will leave another void filled by man's worst impulses. Perhaps we should put a woman's impulses in it instead. See if that makes a difference. This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Friday, March the 18th, 2022. Nigel Farage is cross because Brexit is doing what it said it would. Imagine spending 20 years of your life and millions of pounds demanding something and then it arrives and puts you out of a job. You find yourself adrift, unable to tell port from starboard, wondering how in a war-torn, post-pandemic economic belch you'll be able to make ends meet. It's not so bad though, because at least you're not one of 800 P&O staff who found out in the course of a 75-second Zoom call 
that the billionaire domestic abuser who ultimately owns the firm thinks its initials stand for piss and off. You're Nigel Farage, proto-Pratt, and you have a voice loud enough to tell the world just how cross you are that the Brexit you demanded, campaigned for and made more extreme is suddenly not the Brexit you wanted after all. He wrote on Twitter, It's a disgrace that cheap foreign workers will replace 800 sacked P&O ferry staff. Brexit was about putting our people first. And he told the BBC in June 2016 about Brexit, We shouldn't measure everything in terms of GDP figures or economics. There's something called quality of life. Go and sell that in Dover this morning, Nige. See how far you get in the redundancy blockade. Four years earlier, he told the European Parliament, It's a European Union of economic failure, of mass unemployment and low growth. Nigel, the Bank of England's on the phone. They've got a bitter laugh for you. It's like Henry VIII saying, when I said behead her, I actually meant behold. Or Hitler turning around at the end of the war and telling his generals, no, juice, I hate juice, you fools. Or to use a despot Nigel claims to understand, It's like Donald Trump claiming he really wanted the girls to kiss on the bed. Nigel's not raising his beer glass now, is he? No, he's selling online Mother's Day video messages on thrills.com for £74 a pop, which is twice what a decent bunch of flowers costs and smells distinctly iffy. Unlike ferry staff, he's found a berth at GBB's News where he's paid what must be an unreasonable amount to wail about trans rights, climate change and teenaged Swedes. Quite what Nigel expected when he demanded and got an end to jobs red tape is unclear, but he seems surprised to find that it means Bahamian flagged ferries operated by foreign crews via a shipping agency based in the European tax haven of Cyprus. Which is odd, considering that Nigel was a member of the European Parliament for 21 years where all the rules that made that possible were discussed and voted on, and where for several years he also sat, when he could be bothered, on its International Trade Committee, where such laws were studied in detail. Anywho, blue passports. And to be fair, Nigel's not the only one who's having to swivel. In April 2016, the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union told its members to vote for Brexit, and I quote, to protect workers' rights. Then General Secretary Mick Cash called the bloc, and I quote again, a bosses club that attacks the shipping and offshore sectors. Yesterday, his successor Mick Lynch called the P&O sackings one of the most shameful acts in the history of British industrial relations. What he didn't say was that Brexit was another. After leaving the EU, the UK is no longer strictly bound by its rules protecting employment rights. And it's a fact that P&O staff in France, Netherlands and the Republic of Ireland have not been made redundant. It's also a fact that the Brexit deal we agreed promises that one party shall not lower its employment rights in such a way that it means the other party suffers. And as far as P&O is concerned, this clause holds up fine, because the only party which suffers if Britain burns its jobs laws is Britain. Last month, Boris Johnson announced a Brexit Freedoms Bill, which will make it possible to rip out any remaining protections the EU gave us overrides judicial precedent and gives ministers the right to make all those changes with a memo rather than a vote. Now, that's a long way off being law, but P&O didn't sack a third of its UK staff without asking a lawyer if they'd get away with it. They put balaclava-clad security goons on standby, they laid on buses, and they had to strike a deal somehow 
to get 800 Cyprus registered agency staff on seafarers passes into the country and to the ports all in one go. Plus, they surely had to get a few of them full UK work permits for the internal route between Scotland and Northern Ireland and do it en masse rather than individually. The whole process will have taken months and involve the cooperation and knowledge of government officials. The same government that today has announced itself, and I quote again, extremely concerned and frankly angry to find the thing it had helped happen had now occurred. And so here we are in a place where Brexit has enabled British workers to be replaced with foreign European ones and ours are unable to head to Europe to find new jobs. Without changing our employment laws, we've nevertheless found a way to reduce the legal responsibilities of an employer, which has saved itself millions in pension contributions and national insurance because the Brexit deal makes that okay so long as only Britain suffers. And with new customs checks, we've stopped £44 billion worth of goods being traded with the EU, which put fewer lorries on ferries and caused the accounting loss that P&O used to justify the sackings. If someone promises to rip up red tape, what you'll get is a tangle. They didn't promise to tighten it, refine it, remove or secure it. Rip up, they said, like it was wrapping paper standing between you and a Christmas present. Every parent in the world knows that means there'll be a mess to clean up. And here it is. A bonfire of rights and responsibilities, while capitalists push whatever they can find through the loopholes to the detriment of the humans who can no longer put food on the table as a result. Still, they could always sign up to thrills.com. I wonder how much a former engine room petty officer can get for a video message telling Nigel to go and fuck himself.